Welcome to the Dialogue by Wirepoints, connecting the dots between our economy, government, and people. And now your hosts, Ted Dabrowski and Mark Glennon. Mark Lennon here from Wirepoints. Welcome to the Dialogue. I'm here with my partner, Ted Dabrowski, and today we have, are delighted to have with us Matt Rosenberg, who is joining us now and will be senior editor here at Wirepoints. Uh, Matt, you may know, recently published a terrific book about Chicago. It's uh, called What Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. Um, it's jammed full of facts and figures, and more importantly, he, he uh, wore out a lot of shoe leather walking even the toughest neighborhoods in Chicago to find out what's going on in the city. We're going to talk today mostly about crime. We'll return to uh, talk a little bit about Matt and his background and what else he'll be doing uh, with us at WirePoints, but we're so proud to have him with us now. He's a real pro with 30 years of experience at the intersection of, of uh crime and journalism widely published in the national review chicago tribune seattle times the oregonian and many others um ted why don't you start out with trying to summarize some of the things that we've uh, wanted to tackle that matt has done a lot of work on and uh, we can get into some of the viewpoints conclusions ideas he has for addressing what's now really an overriding problem in Chicago, which is the crime problem and many other cities. Yeah, no, we're excited to have you, Matt. Welcome to Wire Points and uh, welcome to the dialogue. Of course, we've, we've talked to you once before. Look, we're excited because of Wire Points. There's so many things that we just can't cover. Um, there's so many problems in Illinois. We're an outlier in so many ways. Uh, and so Matt gets to come in and cover. You know, we, we argue that you can't have a great Illinois with a, with a Chicago that's struggling. You can't have a, a great Chicago if it's um, crime-ridden and there's just not enough opportunity for people there. So Matt's going to help us cover some of the crime, courts, and policing uh, in Chicago, some of the educational issues, uh, and certainly ethics and governance. And, and a lot of what that ends up costing us is uh, it costs us a human capital. So Matt's going to cover a lot of those issues, and not just in Chicago, but, but throughout the state. So we're excited to have you here, Matt. Matt, there was something exciting that happened over the weekend, and that was the Jesse Smollett case. Uh, why don't you start there? That kind of tells us a lot about what's going on in, in uh, Illinois and in Chicago. You bet, Ted, and I'm thrilled to be joining WirePoints. Looking forward to it greatly. Um, the whole Jesse Smollett case, of course, started out in a real phantasmagoric vein with a staged hate crime, the details of which everyone knows now, but will doubtless make for a... Uh, you know, movie of the week on TV sometime very soon. But uh, the whole thing kind of hijacks the dialogue on victims' rights. Here we had a fake celebrity victim now sentenced to 150 days in jail and some uh, fairly meaty uh, fines. Um, but in real life here in Chicago on the streets of the South Side, you know, anonymous, virtually anonymous victims um, are killed and, and nobody barely notices. The 61-year-old man killed just the other day in the 7,500 block of South Ellis. Uh, his name not even given, no details, four lines in the Sun-Times. What about his family and their quest for justice? I don't think they're going to have any inside connections. Um, we've got murder clearance rates 
in Chicago that are effectively 20 to 30 percent when you cut through the statistical noise, uh, which the Chicago Police Department's drapes those figures in. That's not real justice either. Um, so there, there are a whole range of concerns, including some recent remarks by, by Mayor Lightfoot about how this is going to be the year of accountability. But then she uh, turns around promptly and blames gun makers and social media for violence. Yeah, what, what really struck me uh, very early on in the uh, Smollett debacle was the people, it seemed to me, who were most suspicious most quickly were, were blacks in Chicago. You saw it immediately on social media. They said, wait a minute, something's not right here. And, uh, you know, they, they know that uh, what's going on. They have street sense and they're, uh, they knew that this was a, an issue that brought up the in injustice this did to true victims of hate crimes and true victims of, of police misconduct. And uh, uh, it, it, it was heartwarming to see that they figured this out so much more quickly than many of our, our top politicians, you know, from Kamala Harris on down who were still still praising Jussie Smollett after it. Uh, why don't we talk about uh, bail reform, which uh, is a big topic. It implicates uh, Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox, who was behind basically the attempt to let off Jussie Smollett early on. And uh, that's really the, the subject where she is subject to the most amount of criticism, bail reform along with generally speaking, failing to prosecute some of these crimes. What are you saying there, Matt? Well, I like to broaden the bail reform conversation, which is hugely important to encompass also shortcomings in the probation and parole systems. But first, let's just look at bail reform. Um, we found that our chief judge, Tim Evans, can't be trusted. He downplayed by a factor of about four, the Chicago Tribune reported, um, the number of uh, folks out on low or no cash bond who then recommitted crimes, committed new crimes while out on bail. Uh, he excluded whole categories of crime from his statistical analysis. Uh, it continues. Guys out on bail are carjacking shooting, killing even, uh, we've got a problem. You know, if one innocent black man is shot by a cop, it's rightly, uh, uh, you know, a national story. But when, you know, 50 or 100 people are crime victims, including murder victims in a given year, uh, at the hands of guys charged with crimes but not behind bars before trial, uh, we're told it's a rounding error, in effect. So that's the essence of the problem with with bail reform here. Uh, you know, uh, parole and probation are a big problem because it's turning out many of the murders that we hear about are being committed <clears throat> by people on parole or probation. Um, Chicago cop Ella French, for example. Um, a whole host of others, Melissa Ortega, the eight-year-old killed in Little Village, uh, Denny Zhang, the University of Chicago graduate student in statistics who was killed, all of them and many more were slain 
allegedly slain by now charged suspects who were on probation or parole for serious crimes, including armed carjacking. So we've got a real problem there. How do we beef up parole and, and probation? Um, Matt, the, the, uh, how, how did we get into this? Uh, I want to go back three or four years when a very hot topic became uh, the importance of getting people out of the jail who were not charged with uh, violent crimes. And pretty much everybody was on board with that, including me, by the way. I mean, I you hadn't been paying close at, at enough attention to it, but I thought that you know, many of the uh, sentences that were imposed on uh, relatively minor drug dealers were, were too lenient. Uh, and you had a broad spectrum across the political uh, conservatives, uh, libertarians, liberals alike saying uh, we incarcerated too many people. So we put in uh, reforms, statutory reforms, without looking at them too closely, in my opinion. And am I right about that? Is that where it went too far? I mean, this is one of the topics that we haven't had the resources to cover, but we, we passed those kinds of laws in Illinois. And uh, now we're looking at them again and see where, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? Um, have you put any thought into that? And, uh, you know, at, at some point, I'm sure we'll ask you to look hard at the Illinois statute and some of these ideas being suggested, but do you have any initial views on that? Well, absolutely, Mark. In the beginning, it was uh, bail reform was supposed to be focused on nonviolence and even often first-time offenders. And like you, I wholly support that notion, but it's been badly misapplied. And there is where you have to ask the what are the roots question about the misapplication of the principle of bail reform. And I think it stems with a uh, turning of criminal justice into social justice. And it's going to sound um, kind of hardcore to some people, but I think what's driving this is racialization, the making uh, of everything about race. And there is this idea among our you know, elite college and state college educated uh, prosecutors and city council members and state legislators that if a man of color is in jail, that's a race crime. There's also uh, roots going back to, you know, the, the rhetoric and argument that something called mass incarceration ever existed. And the common narrative uh, has been that, uh, well, after the crack epidemic, you know, uh, prosecutors and lawmakers went crazy putting black men in jail. Well, here's an interesting fact. The uh, jail population across all jurisdictions peaked at 2.3 million people in 2008. That's federal and uh, Pew Research data. Well, the population in 2008, the over-19 population, those 2.3 million people represented just 1.09% of that slice of the population. So if that's mass incarceration, I'm scratching my head. You know, Matt, um, and, and Mark, you, you bring up a good point about the move um, to you know call out over-criminalization. And uh, I remember working on some of this stuff, and, and you started to see this move, I thought, without sufficient data to make all these claims. 
and it bothered me a lot because uh, in, in that previous work I was doing, I didn't hold the data. I couldn't find the data. And so a lot of the claims were being made without what I think was properly vetted data. And it kind of leads to another question that I, I know that, uh, you know, Matt, I know you obsess about. Do we have the right amount of data to understand what the heck we're doing in, in Chicago? How much of it is suppressed? Do we really understand, you know, are cases being solved? Um, do we really take into account plea bargains and what that means to think? You know, there's so much that you have to understand about the data before you can make claims. So talk about that a little bit. You bet, Ted. I feel strongly that we need a great deal more transparency in reporting of outcomes in Cook County Circuit Court criminal cases. We do hear from uh, state's attorney Kim Fox that she has a very high acceptance rate of prosecution referrals, uh, somewhere in the uh, mid 80%, low 90%, if I recall. But we don't know what happens after that. How many cases are dropped from prosecution in the end? Uh, or more importantly, what happens when the cases are resolved? Uh, there are plea deals that result in guys being put on probation who then go out and kill somebody. How can we track all of that stuff? Jury trials, plea deals, the whole schmear, courtroom by courtroom, with the names of judges, the names of prosecutors, obviously the names of defendants and their prior records. Um, that sounds like a lot. Current regulations definitely stand in the way of that. It would take probably new state law to mandate that kind of transparency, but we just don't know what's happening. There are some great websites that report bits and pieces of it, obviously CWB Chicago, uh, is a lodestar and uh, a huge hat tip to those guys for the incredible work they do. But we need it across the board in all criminal cases. We vote for these judges, but we don't really even know what they're doing. Let's move on to uh, corruption, which is obviously a big topic now, um, primarily because of the indictment of House Speaker, Speaker Michael Madigan. Um, what do you think? Is it a new day? Uh, you know, some people have been surprised that some people say they were surprised by this indictment and the scope of it. It's a RICO claim. Uh, the government describes Madigan's operation as the enterprise in the indictment. Um, has this sparked some new attention? Do you, they have finally changed things in Chicago on the white collar political crime, Matt, do you think, or what? I think, uh, the U.S. attorney in Northern Illinois, John Lausch, and his staff deserve uh, a real salute for the work they've done on this case and the work leading to the prior indictments of four Madigan allies uh, as part of the same general alleged criminal enterprise our former Speaker of the State House was running. But no, I don't think it's a new day yet, and it's not going to be uh, until meaty reforms are adopted, regardless of what happens uh, to Madigan. And I've got a few ideas about what might constitute some meaty reforms. Yeah, what really bugs me is uh, there were a group of maybe 19 legislators that maybe two or three months ago when things started to look bad for Madigan, uh, these were Democrats that that called for him to resign or go away or whatever. And now they're they're regarded as heroes, called such by 
like Rich Miller in one of his columns and they're, they're patting themselves on the back. You know, give me a break. Everybody in Illinois that has followed government at all has known that this kind of thing has been going on for decades. Uh, everything that goes through Madigan's office that's important uh, has a quid pro quo behind it. And uh, to speak up, you know, as the, sh the ship was three-fourths underwater doesn't make somebody a hero. And it's just incredibly annoying to see these people slapping themselves on the back for this. And they'll, they'll probably get away with it. You know, so far they have. Uh, maybe we'll write about it. I feel like the political industrial corruption complex in Illinois is a stack of Russian nesting dolls. And when you look at how Cook County suburbs and state legislators uh, figure into all of this, and Chicago aldermen over time, it's an incredibly rich and deep web of relationships. It ties into our state pension issue. It ties into the absurd number of government units in this state, 9,000 almost by one recent count. Um, it's it's just fairly mind-boggling. I think one place to start with media reforms would be to really put some teeth into the legislative inspector general. Give that office independent subpoena issuing powers and full unhindered public report issuing powers mandate full transparency of the LIG's proceedings and bar legislators from membership on the commission overseeing the work of the legislator inspector general's office. That would be one good start then maybe they could pat themselves on the back just a little bit. Hey, Matt, um, obviously, you, you, well, talk about a couple more reforms. I want to I want to ask you a question about about yourself. But uh, any, sure. what are a couple other reforms you're thinking about there? Well, a few others I'm thinking of extend the, the idea of an inspector, inspector general to all Cook County suburbs, not just the ones who've accepted the offer from Sheriff Tom Dart's office to serve that function. Uh, suburban Chicago corruption is vast and longstanding and still too unchecked. The feds cannot cover it all. And we need to remember that rule that only one in 10 bureaucratic crimes are even detected. So that's one thing. In Chicago, we need an end to off-year elections. You know, oh, we one. have that's them in odd, odd years. Yeah. That's a real problem. We only get 33% turnout, but our same Chicago electorate turns out very strong. 70% of registered voters on presidential elections. The off-year elections are responsible for all kinds of things, including the outsized influence of public employee unions, because their members vote no matter when the elections are held. All right, Matt, so tell me something. Uh, you know, what's what's your license people may not know you. So what's your license to say what you say? What's your background? What makes you tick here? Um, you're certainly passionate about these issues. So give, give the give our listeners a, a feel for you. Sure. I grew up in Chicago. I moved here as a six-year-old kid in 1964. Uh, my dad, Milt, 
Rosenberg was taking a job as a social psychologist at the University of Chicago. So I grew up here and came of age here. And as a young man, I started to learn about the Chicago Democratic machine. And I should hasten to add, I classify myself as a uh, cantankerous independent, not a Republican, still after all these years, even if I have been mugged by reality. But I worked on the Mirage Tavern investigation, documenting uh, corruption involving city of Chicago inspectors. I helped get an independent reform alderman from Edgewater elected to the city council in a special election in 1978, Marion Kennedy Volini. And uh, I've spent about 30 years plus in uh, journalism and public policy. Uh, and this place just grabs me, and it really grabbed me in 2020 <laughs> uh, when all of our nation's cities were blowing up. And I had to come back, and I did, and I moved into Bridgeport of all places. And as you guys already know, I... Uh, I went deep into the South Side and interviewed Black and Latino people about their own success stories and, and what's going wrong here. And uh, I wrote a book uh, about how Chicago can step up uh, to the many challenges it's facing. So basically, this place is kind of in my blood. And uh, that's why I'm back here and, and thrilled to be joining you guys at Wirepoint. And you, you bring an eclectic approach. You're, you're not, not some knee-jerk law and order guy. Just lock them up. Uh, either are we. Uh, you've uh, taken a hard look at some of the longer-term measures. I mean, locking people up is a short-term measure to, to address the problem. But uh, you put some thought into uh, what works in terms of all the spending. Uh, Lori Lightfoot says we can invest our way out of the crime problem. It's not that simple, uh, but some of it uh, makes sense for the long run. Uh, tell us what you've seen that you, you think has been working. Sure. I'm a big fan of privately funded non-governmental organizations stepping up to really bring life and energy into uh, neighborhood economies, into what are now sometimes called ghost neighborhoods. Uh, in Pullman, which is certainly not a ghost neighborhood at all, uh, not anymore. There's a great micro-lending program run by the Chicago Neighborhoods Initiative. Now, that's a community development corporation um, run by a great guy named David Doig, who actually worked under uh, Richard Daly II. Um, they're making loans very often to black male ex-convicts, uh, loans of twenty dollars or $40,000 at a pop so they can buy sprinter vans and start their own companies, package delivery firms feeding off the Amazon economy. I think that's just brilliant. What if we could scale more micro-lending run by community development corporations across the city and see more of that in, in Austin, in Roseland, in Englewood. That's exactly what we need. Um, one other thing is construction trades training programs. We know that Reverend Corey Brooks has been uh, making a lot of headway on that front in Woodlawn. Um, I think we need more of that. And the uh, $35 million he's trying to raise to build a new job training center and community center is a great, great project. But if that comes off, one of the uh, facilities will be for auto mechanic training. Well, you need a second year uh, 
uh, college reading level, it turns out, to be an auto mechanic. So that opens up a whole other can of worms. It has to do with uh, early childhood learning readiness and school choice, which are two other huge pieces of what I call human capital development. Yeah, school choice is going to be a big issue for us. It always has been, actually, but we're um, has overwhelming public support here and across the country. It continues to baffle me why candidates aren't talking more about that, given the bipartisan support for it. Um, and you've got a, a great background in that, and we're looking forward to your help. Um, it, you've got a great background in a lot of things, actually. You're quite a renaissance man. We were talking before about some of the work that your dad did on the intersection between psychology and, and uh, politics, which is a fascinating area. Maybe we can tackle at some point. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, energy. We, we've got an energy problem right now. I happened to mention that I was going to be working on taking a hard look at Illinois' new uh, big energy program and how it relates to the shortage that we have. And it turns out uh, you did a lot of work on that in the past. And uh, uh, I'm sure you're going to be a lot of help there. Well, thank you, Mark. I, it's really, to me, personally and professionally, awesome to have a, a place and a platform to bring my sort of passion for, for good public policy to bear. And, you know, so many people I've talked to, you know, said, oh, Matt, I lived in Cook County. I lived in Chicago for 30 years and I just couldn't take it anymore. And on the one hand, I get that because everyone has their own risk management parameters. But on the other hand, looking at Illinois as, as a whole, where are you going to find a better laboratory you know, to see what works, because there's so much to fix here. Um, I think that in the end, too, there is a lot about psychology and politics in play, because if you look at Cook County, voters have consistently rubber stamped effectively more of the same. So what's the breaking point? You know, I kind of feel like if we're not at it now, and we haven't even talked about fiscal stuff. I know that that's your bailiwick and Ted's, and you guys do an amazing job of covering taxes and pensions and borrowing. Uh, looking at all of it, the crime problems, the uh, education problems, public finance problems, uh, and more, the ethics and corruption problems. You know, if, if Illinois is not a laboratory for fixing what ails our states in our major metro regions, I don't know what is. So this could be exciting in its own way. You know, Matt, you spend a lot of time uh, looking at other cities as well, right? You're obviously not mm -hmm. just looking at Chicago and Illinois. That's see, right. see if you can pull. Let's let's see. I, I, you and I haven't talked about this, but some of the psychology. What makes Chicago and Illinois when we talk about the corruption, the crime, the the the, the level of what an outlier state we are across so many things? What do you think is behind some of that? And I know it's not one thing or that, but what do you feel might be contributing to how deep we are and the fact that we keep voting for the same stuff and uh, it doesn't seem like there's an end right now? That's a tough question. Um, why are we so apathetic, I guess, is another way of framing it. Why are we so tolerant? Um, I think in the end, there are probably three or four good answers to that. And 
I can't imagine all of them right now. I do know that one thing that contributes to uh, our acceptance of a rotten status quo here is this sort of uh, mythology that we've built up around corruption. We kind of love the rascals. Um, and there's a way that uh, political corruption and our, our rampant uh, violent crime problem in Chicagoland overlap. Politicians have always had this ethos here of so long as you can get away with it, it's all good. And we see that for sure in this elaborate uh, criminal enterprise, alleged criminal enterprise run by, let's not forget this, the man who was Speaker of the House for many decades. Um, that's fairly outrageous on the face of it. He's, if prosecutors are right, he's just one more grubby, self-interested politician. Um, well, you know, a couple of our governors have been sent away to the big house. Few states can claim the endemic level of corruption of Illinois. So I think in the end, we celebrated. We still chuckle about, was it Paul Powell and his shoeboxes full of cash? You know, there's a, a lore and a mythology. So that's part of it. But I think we've got here too a crippling leftism that assumes blacks have no agency. We've got institutionalized incompetence, nothing works, the courts, the schools, uh, city hall finance. We've got this keening ambition, which translates into, I will use power for my own ends, not the greater good. And then finally, you've got that crippling corruption, which is, you know, everybody sticking their hand in the cookie jar at the same time and pulling out a lot. So those four factors, I think, particularly in Chicago, are what drives the dysfunction. So, Matt, uh, why wire points? We're flattered to have you here. Uh, I'm curious about you. You've been around the block in media. Uh, we have a special role. We're not traditional media. We're not reporters, as I've as I've said. Uh, we uh, kind of like how the Wall Street Journal refers to us as a policy outfit because they don't know how to label us. We're not a think tank. Uh, we, we do aggregate news from original news sources, but we mostly do research and commentary. Uh, I like to think we're, we're cracking into public opinion. I'm quite sure we are on many things, um, as I think is true nationally, but that's very difficult to measure. Um, part of the problem nationally, of course, has been the media, the traditional media. They um, often lack the resources, especially at the local level. Um, they are biased in many cases, especially the national media. Um, are these alternative sources making progress? And is that part of the attraction of wire points to you? How do, you, how do we fit into the, to the universe here? I've long had an interest in what you might call emerging uh, regional news ecologies. I go back to about uh, the early 2000s in doing national and regional uh, political analysis online at some major sites. Of course, I had an opportunity to write a regular opinion column for mainstream media at the Seattle Times. I've had an opportunity to do investigative work with the BGA back when I was just a wet behind the ears kid. 
in college. Um, but I really see the importance of a credible uh, alternative media that does the hard work, the heavy lifting that does data stories and commentary. And Mark, I feel like I've kind of found my own sweet spot in my writing. And I, I hope this came through in the book that I published last September. My sweet spot is combination of commentary and uh, statistical and policy research combined with real shoe leather investigation of communities, the people and what works. I have a real comfort level with going out into the city of Chicago. Uh, some of my friends worry about me, don't worry. Um, so I'm gonna be out there, I'm gonna be combining all these things together, but policy and doing that research, getting into the social science journals, the government reports that fall between the cracks on the gray web, gathering all those disparate pieces together and weaving them into a credible, coherent whole that tells human stories. Um, all of that is fascinating and wonderful to me. So I see WirePoints as a great platform for me to be able to do that. Hey, Matt, um, you know, as we get to closing, closing here, Tell us, tell us your favorite story that maybe encapsulates uh, the work you want to do here at Wirepoints or the work that you've recently done that, that captures a little bit of that storytelling, but is backed by, by the data and the facts and that, you know, encapsulates the problems in, in Chicago or in Illinois. I assume you got a favorite one or favorite two. I do. Um, I'm not sure how much data gets attached to this, but one of my favorite stories from the work that I did on the South side for my book was that of a guy named Daryl Smith who lives in Englewood. Um, he's about 52 now. He did three years uh, for involuntary manslaughter when he was 18. He got mixed up in some stuff. He was in a car and some stuff went down. When he got out, he chose the straight life. Uh, now he owns 10 residential properties and he's also helped bust open a labor union that was formerly closed off the blacks. That story in particular was a great one to me. Back around 03 in Englewood, he saw a new uh, construction site filled with white and Mexican laborers, no blacks. And of course, Englewood is about 99% black. He organized and a bunch of guys basically blocked the trucks. They blocked the cement mixers and the dump trucks. They lay down in front of them as though they were Martin Luther King. They got hauled off to jail. It happened again. Finally, they reached an accommodation. This was the laborers union, a famous union in Chicago and not always for, for, for savory reasons. Uh, run by Italians and Irish. Uh, now, many years later, some 950 black men and women from Chicago and Chicagoland have, have earned positions through the laborers union and they make $44 an hour as journeymen. So that could open up to a lot of good data stories, you know, trying to measure the progress in creation of construction industry training programs, looking at the actual data on minority representation, 
in the construction trades. And most of all, from a policy standpoint, it pushes us towards looking at the kinds of jobs that are feasible for people in low-income minority communities. Uh, certainly, there's a high capability for advanced academic and professional achievement. We recently heard about a young man from Providence, St. Mel, young black man who got a perfect 36 score on his ACT test, and his comments were so right on. He said, the kind of capability that I have is out there all over the black community in Chicago. It's just that the opportunities to develop that capability, you know, aren't often available. And mind you, he was going to a private Catholic high school, you know, point taken on school choice. So, you know, the Daryl Smith story reminds us to look harder at opportunity for African-Americans and Latinos in Chicago and to measure it. Well, Matt, we're, we're damn proud to uh, have you aboard now. And uh, uh, you listeners, you can, you'll be seeing his columns regularly on wire points. Uh, we'll continue to cover as thoroughly as we all, always have the uh, primary topics that uh, had been challenging before this recent crime surge. And we're uh, happy to have the additional coverage that Matt is going to provide, not just on crime in Chicago, but, uh, but on all the challenges facing uh, state and local government here. You can uh, check out his, his book, What Next Chicago, uh, Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. Look for his columns here on, on WirePoints. Uh, Matt, it's great to have you on the team. And uh, you know, I think uh, we'll, we'll add, you'll add a little spice to some of the stuff we do, and it's going to be exciting. And uh, we look forward to working together and, of course, uh, reaching more people in Illinois. And, of course, you know, a big goal of ours is to put out the solutions. we got to highlight the, the problems, but put out the solutions. And we plan on doing that, uh, you know, Mark, Matt, Ted, and John, and the rest of the team. So uh, we're excited. And one more big point. Thank you to our contributors out there who provide the money to make our expansion possible with, with Matt and more expansion to come. Thank you again. Thank you, guys. It's a real pleasure, and I'm looking forward to this adventure. <laughs>